on Sunday mornings. If you're with us and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and uh, you just wave to them. Now put a Bible in your hand. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, to you today. I'll pick one verse in, in Romans uh, chapter 7. You said, I thought we were in 8. Are we backpedaling? Uh, just for one week for a little bit of elaboration. We'll look at one verse, uh, verse 18. But I also want you to go a little bit to the left in your Bible and uh, turn also to Acts chapter 1 and kind of hold both those places because we'll refer to both of them uh, this morning. <clears throat> Acts chapter 1, Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, verse 18, Paul writes and he says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, uh, in terms of to obey God. The will is there to do it, but how to perform what is good I do not find. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, and being assembled together with them, this is the disciples, he, that is Jesus, commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And therefore, when they had come together and they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom uh, to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. And then he brings their attention back to what he was talking about to begin with, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And it describes it wonderfully in verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that you would anoint us to study it today and to listen to it today, and that it wouldn't be a textbook. It wouldn't just be words on a page, but that we would hear your Father's voice and your instruction uh, by your Holy Spirit, through your Word today, speaking into the privacy of our own hearts and our minds and into the uh, personal relationship that we have with you, Lord. And we pray that you would deepen it and enrich our relationship as a result of our time in your Word this morning. We pray for each man and woman that stands before you right now <clears throat> who is not yet a Christian and we pray that today that great light would go on in terms of their need and that they would surrender to you and enter into the relationship with you that they have been created for and without which nothing else in life can satisfy or make sense. And so we pray that you would meet with them and, and we ask for a work of your Holy Spirit that would bring them into your kingdom and into your family. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And the study that I'm uh, going to teach right now related to these passages, it can almost uh, seem uh, a little bit academic, and it will be, but I, I don't apologize for it. I, I mention it. I, I have an aversion personally to ever asking someone uh, to believe something uh, simply because I say the Bible says such and such. Uh, because the reason that's an insufficient foundation in a person's life is then the next person comes along and says, well, I believe different than that. 
and, uh, and, and then uh, and, and without us seeing the biblical foundation for uh, the things of the Bible, and especially the subject that we're talking about today, uh, we can be easily moved. And today we're going to talk about uh, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And there's, uh, there can be considerable amount of opinions and even controversy related to the baptism with the Holy Spirit uh, in the body of Christ as a whole. And I want you to experience the fullness of what God has for you related to the Holy Spirit, but again, not because I have uh, said it, but because you've seen it with your own eyes uh, in the Scriptures. In Romans chapter 7, it describes this, as we've seen, this miserable, wretched spiritual condition of a Christian who is trying to achieve his own sanctification or holiness in his life on the basis of either keeping the law, the law of Moses or any law, or on the basis of human effort or determination or, or human strength. And it always ends in failure. It ended in failure for Paul as he describes his experience in chapter 7. It ends in failure for any uh, Christian because no one can live the Christian life in our own strength or on the basis of, of law. And, the, and the, as wonderful as the law of Moses is, as setting a standard for personal holiness within our lives. It, it, it has two glaring deficiencies uh, related to it in terms of accomplishing holiness in our lives. Number one, it does not provide us with the will or the motivation to obey it. And then number two, it does not provide us with the power to obey the law. And so what the law of Moses does is it dooms us. It's worse, it's worse than not having a law at all. It dooms us not only to a life of defeat uh, by not giving us the power to, to keep what it calls us to do, but then constantly reminding us uh, of our sins in the midst of that defeat. And th all of this is in absolutely stark contrast. Uh, to what we looked at last week uh, in terms of the law of the Spirit at work in a Christian's life, where the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and not only demands a holiness that is much higher than what the law of Moses demands, because it doesn't just deal with our outward actions, but it, it, it requires holiness within, holiness in our thinking, holiness in our speaking, holiness in our motivation. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's the holiness that we're called to in the New Testament. And the law of, of Moses or the law of the Spirit comes in and lifts this wonderful high standard that is basically Christ-likeness before us and calls on us to live it. But the law of the Spirit then brings the desire into our life in the person of the Holy Spirit the desire to now live that law and keep those commandments, the law of the Spirit, and then it provides us with that, it, with the power now to obey the New Testament commandments that are found in Scripture. Uh, the, the famous verse on this is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, for those of you who take notes. Paul wrote, and he said, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Notice he does not say work for your salvation. He says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then here for our purposes this morning. For it is God who works in you 
to will, to provide the motivation and, and the, the, the desire to obey His commandments. To, he works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. He provides us not only the desire to keep God's Word and His commandments, but then the power uh, to do it. And it's an important message and, and one that's uh, a passage and very uh, worth uh, uh, memorizing. Now, it's very important to realize and to recognize a couple of things about uh, this Christian life uh, described in Romans chapter 7. Uh, beyond what we've seen already, and that is just the absolute misery of it and the continual defeat of sin in the life of the Christian that is described here. It's important to realize that when Paul, uh, the person Paul is describing here in Romans chapter 7 is not unsaved. This is a saved person, uh, this person that's caught in this Romans chapter 7 Christianity. Uh, Paul's use of the personal pronoun I continually from verse 7 in, in chapter 7 uh, it, it declares that this passage is autobiographical concerning Paul, concerning a, a process in the Christian life that he personally experienced, not before becoming a Christian, but upon becoming a Christian. Additionally, if you notice in chapter 7, in verses 21 and 22, uh, this, Paul's description of this person in those two verses. In verse 21, this person this, in this wretched Christian condition of, of Romans chapter 7, he is described in verse 21 as a person who wills to do good. This is a person who loves God. This is a Christian who wants to do good. They want to obey God's commandment. Uh, they describe God's commandments as good. Then you notice in verse 22 that this person delights in the law of God according to the inward man. The word delight, it means delight. It also means to rejoice in. It means to feel good about. It means to happily approve. That is not the attitude of a non-Christian toward the Word of God and the commandments of God. That is a description solely of someone who has uh, been uh, born again. Paul has already established that earlier in the letter in describing uh, uh, the unsaved related to the attitude uh, toward God and His Word. In Romans chapter 3, verse 11, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. You can look in your Bible just a little further down in Romans chapter 8, where Paul makes the same point in verse 7, where he says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor can it be. The person who is experiencing this struggle in Romans chapter 7 is not an unsaved person. It is a Christian, and that is very, very important uh, to uh, understand. And it is a, a Christian who wants to obey God. They want to live for Him. The desire to live for Him is, is present. It's described in every conceivable way. The good that I want to do, I don't do. The, 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 the things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. I mean, he, he says it every way you can say it. But what this Romans chapter 7 Christian lacks here is the power to obey God's Word, the power to live a victorious Christian life that they read about in the New Testament. 
And what they lack is the how of verse 18. And that's why I wanted us to read verse 18. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. I want to obey God's word. But his great stumbling block was how, 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 how to perform what is good I do not uh, find. And they lack that how. And what this teaches us that is so important uh, this morning, it teaches us that it is possible to be born again, possible to have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, have the Holy Spirit inside of us as Christians, but then lacking the full supernatural dynamic of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. And and thus, for the sake of any of us who find ourselves still in Romans chapter uh, 7 this morning, I want to pause here in Paul's whole thought progression on sanctification as he's carrying it on through uh, from chapter 6 through chapter 8 here. And what I want to do is I want to go sideways a little bit in order to add Jesus's very, very significant insights and voice uh, into this supernatural aspect of the Christian life uh, concerning the Holy Spirit examining this thing that Jesus himself called the uh, baptism with the Holy Spirit. In other words, if the Holy Spirit, as we saw last week, is the how behind the what of God's Word, and he is, then how do we fully access or receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit within our lives, and with that, the fullness of the how, the power to live this Christian life and to move from a life of continual defeat uh, as Christians, if that's our portion. And so with that, I'd like you to turn uh, to the book of Acts chapter 1, and we'll kind of formally uh, make that our focus from this point on. I want you to notice that in those verses that we read, in verses 4 through uh, 8, that Jesus commanded the disciples not to depart from uh, Jerusalem. And this is after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, but it's before his ascension into heaven, ten days before his ascension into heaven. And he speaks to these disciples, he speaks to the apostles, and he tells them, do not depart from uh, Jerusalem, but to wait until they had received what he referred to as the baptism with the Holy Spirit in verses 4 and 5. Did we read verses 4 through 8 to start? Did we do that? Okay, good. Thank you. Two services. I've had a rough week, um, but enough of that. I'm fine. But, but here he is. Uh, well, you'll be the judge of that. Uh, <clears throat> But he tells them now to stay in Jerusalem, and they are not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait until they had, excuse me, received what he referred to as the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is saying an awful lot about how important the baptism with the Holy Spirit is to Jesus in the life of a Christian, and thus how important it ought to be to each and every one of us as as Christians, and how important the baptism with the Holy Spirit is to living the Christian life and and fulfilling the the Christian service. It's important to remember that the apostles had been with Jesus for three and a half years. 
They had heard everything that he had taught multiple times. They had seen every miracle. They watched how he conducted himself in crowds that were friendly and crowds that were hostile. They watched how he conducted himself in, um, in private settings, how he handled individuals in his, his life. And I would have thought after having three and a half years of this kind of exposure to the life and the ministry of Jesus, that at this particular point in time, Jesus would have said something like this to the disciples. Listen, you've seen it all, you've heard it all, you've been taught all there is to be taught, and uh, if you're not ready now, you're never going to be ready. Now get out there and start preaching the gospel and telling people about me. Uh, that's the sermon from Jesus to the disciples that I expect in Acts chapter uh, 1. But that's not the sermon we get. And Jesus did not tell them those things. What he did instead, the sermon that they got, was to wait. In essence, he said, don't preach for me, don't do anything for me, don't evangelize for me, don't do anything on my behalf until you have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And it speaks of the significance of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. It tells us that whatever the baptism with the Holy Spirit is, that nothing else can replace it in the Christian life. No amount of natural talent, no amount of training or education or Bible knowledge or ministry experience or life experience or determination or self-discipline. The disciples had all of that in spades, and yet Jesus said, that is not enough to be successful in what I've called you to do and be for me in this world. And it's the truth. None of those things can replace what only the baptism with the Holy Spirit can bring into our lives. I also want you to notice that this baptism with the Spirit is not something that the Pentecostals have come up with uh, or, the, or that they've dreamed up or that the Charismatics have dreamed up in terms of foisting it now upon uh, Christianity. Notice in verse 4 that Jesus tells us that it was promised by the Father. And being assembled together with him, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And that promise, he describes in verse 5, is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And sometimes, and the reason I mention this, is that sometimes when you talk about the baptism with the Holy Spirit, many, many Christians, depending on their background or where they come from in terms of their exposure to the Bible or what church they've been raised in, you mention the baptism with the Holy Spirit, and people automatically think that's just something that the Pentecostals or the Charismatics believe, but it's not something uh, for me. But it is something that is, we're told here, that was promised by God the Father. And uh, the baptism with the Holy Spirit is all His idea. This comes from God the Father. It, it, the, the promise of this was spoken of by Joel in the Old Testament, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. I'll read them to you, the Lord speaking through Joel. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. 
Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And the reason that I make a lot out of this is to realize that whatever you've been taught or anyone's been taught related to the baptism with the Holy Spirit, to be frightened of it, to think that this is a Pentecostal excess within uh, the body of Christ, or however it can be uh, portrayed within our lives, is to realize it comes from God. It comes from uh, God the Father, who even as we've sung, all He does is good for us. Every good and perfect gift uh, in life comes from Him from above. And so when we're talking about the baptism with the Holy Spirit, no one needs to be anxious. Uh, This is not a modern-day invention. This is something that comes from our Heavenly Father. No need to be uncertain about it. No need to be frightened concerning it. Now, notice uh, Jesus' description of this thing called the baptism with the Holy Spirit, and the description is given there in verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It is this baptism with the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit coming upon us as Christians. And that word upon in verse 8 is very important. And uh, I I would recommend that every Christian circle it uh, in their Bible uh, as a reminder of the significance of the word in the passage. Again, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, Jesus said to these Christians and to us. It's important to realize that in the New Testament, there are three Greek prepositions that are used to describe the relationship between the Holy Spirit and Christians. The first Greek preposition is the word para, and uh, it means uh, with, or it means alongside. Jesus spoke about it in John chapter 14, verse 16. Speaking to the disciples, he said, even the Spirit of truth, uh, speaking of the Spirit, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, uh, but you know him, for he dwells with you, para, and will be in you. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent. That means He's everywhere all at the same uh, time. And because He's everywhere all at the same time, He is always with us, para, as Christians. The second Greek preposition that is used concerning our relationship to the Holy Spirit is the Greek word en. E-N is how it's spelled in that language. It's the equivalent of our English word in, I-N. And this occurs within our lives uh, at the time that we're born again. God's Holy Spirit at that moment comes into our lives. He comes inside of us at His invitation. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, talking to Christians, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? There is that preposition. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, we'll get to it in a few weeks. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells 
in you. There's that preposition again. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. In other words, without this inexperience of the Holy Spirit, a person is not born again. Every single Christian has the Holy Spirit in them. It is what makes us a Christian. And when did that experience happen with the apostles? When did the Holy Spirit come into their lives? If you just turn back a couple of pages and to your left uh, to the book of John and, uh, and turn to John chapter 20, it's important for you to see this uh, with your own eyes. Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples on the night following his resurrection. And in chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus then said to them, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was already para, already with them. Uh, but then following Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, uh, now he comes into their lives. He came in them. The third Greek preposition that's used in the New Testament to describe our relationship as Christians with the Holy Spirit is the word epi, E-P-I, which is accurately translated upon there in uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. That's the, the tra uh, Greek uh, word for the word upon. Jesus referred to this upon experience with the Holy Spirit as being baptized with the Holy Spirit. He refers to that in, in verse 5, which is going to occur in these disciples some 10 days after uh, his interaction with them in Acts chapter 1 uh, on the day of Pentecost. Now, notice that this baptism with the Holy Spirit in verse 8 is the provision of power by the Holy Spirit. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Greek word for power in that passage is the word dunamis. We get our English word dynamic from it, uh, dynamite from it, dynamo from it. And what it is, is, is the provision of dynamic power from the Holy Spirit coming upon a Christian. But notice further in verse 8 that it is a power that God gives to us, not just so that we can lengthen legs or whatever it might be, but it is power given for a purpose. And the purpose is to have the power to be witnesses to Jesus. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then here's the result of it. And you shall be witnesses to me, Jesus said, in Jerusalem, all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This power that we receive by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it is, uh, it is the power to be a witness. It is more than the, than the power to witness or to share the gospel with another person. It is, uh, witnessing is something that I do, uh, but it's more than something that I do. Being a witness is what I am. And so essentially, it's the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit coming into our lives in order for us to live a life that looks like Christ, to be a witness 
to him. It is the power to live like him. It is the power to think like him. It is the power to feel like him. It is the power to talk like him. It is the power to serve like him. It is the power to love like him. It is the power to live a holy life. It is the power to maintain an eternal perspective in the course of this pilgrimage. It is the power to suffer victoriously as he did. And I think it's very important to realize that even Jesus, when he began his public ministry at the age of 30, he began that public ministry being baptized by John the Baptist in the area of Jericho in the Jordan River, and he began his public ministry with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit coming upon him as an equipping uh, for the beginning of his public ministry. I'll read it to you, but for those of you who are taking notes, it's Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And when he, that is Jesus, had been baptized, he came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting a Upon him, there is that Greek preposition uh, again. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons that Jesus received the baptism with the Holy Spirit at the beginning of his public ministry, and I think there are many reasons, is simply as a model to us. Again, the baptism with the Holy Spirit is nothing that anyone should be anxious about. We ought to be so excited. We'll do a Jericho march right now in the sanctuary. But we should be so excited. There's nothing to be frightened about concerning the Holy Spirit. This baptism with the Holy Spirit, it has its uh, origin in the Father. And then it is the, it is the um, uh, explanation for the very life of Jesus, the very life that we want to live. There's nothing to be concerned about. It, it all related to this. Now, the baptism in the Holy Spirit is very interesting terminology to me, and, it, and the terminology has always fascinated me. Because you look at this experience of the Holy Spirit coming upon us, and you think, well, he could name that a lot of different things. Why does he call it the baptism uh, with the Holy Spirit? It might even seem like an odd way of, uh, of, of putting it. And I think he does it because he desires to communicate something to us through the use of the term. I've had the privilege of officiating a lot of water baptisms through uh, the years and, uh, and uh, uh, have hugged many, many people that have been water baptized. And if you've ever hugged a person that's been water baptized, I mean, here you come and it's a family member or a friend or a loved one, and they're coming to get water baptized, I immerse them down into the water, they come up soaking wet as a result of it, and here are all these friends and family members, they're so excited, somebody's holding a towel, but before they can even get a towel to the person, in order for them to dry off, everybody begins to hug the person that's just been water baptized. And what do you get on you when you uh, uh, hug someone who's been water baptized? 
You get water on you. You get on you whatever the person has been baptized in. And when we've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, then when people come into contact with us, now they're coming into contact with an overflow of the Holy Spirit within our lives. The baptism with the Holy Spirit is given in order that when people come into contact with us for the rest of our lives, they will come into contact with the Holy Spirit in doing so. They will not come into contact with the old Damien Kyle, the old flesh, the old whatever, but God wants people to come into contact with the person and the beauty of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit accomplishes that in our lives. I want you to further notice in verse 8 that this baptism with the Holy Spirit provides us with the power uh, to live the Christian life, a Christ-like life, anywhere in the world. And you notice that Jesus, as he closes out what he speaks in that verse, it's the power to be witnesses to him in Jerusalem. Uh, And he's in Jerusalem when he shares this, and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What we are dealing with here in terms of truth that Jesus is speaking to us as Christians, I mean, it's, it's just one word after another that is absolutely jaw-dropping in its significance. And here Jesus describes this baptism with the Holy Spirit, that it provides us not only the power to live a life like Christ, but it provides us with the power to live a life like Christ in any environment in the world. No matter how ungodly, how secular, how depraved, how dark, how demon-oppressed it might be, it is the power to live for him in any and all the environments that we might find ourselves in in the course of our pilgrimage as Christians. And for some people in this room, and for many Christians all around the world, that means home for them. They're the only Christian in that house. And here's the power to live for Christ in that home. And to me, two of the hardest places to live for the Lord and to be holy in those uh, environments and and, uh, to have the power where it's needed to be witnesses to to Jesus in in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the the world, two of the hardest places to live a godly and a holy life is number one at home, which is what Jerusalem was to them. And then on the other side of the world where nobody else is around us. And here is the power to live like Christ when nobody else is watching but God. In any environment we may find ourselves in. Whether it's our home or our school or our city or our neighborhood or our workplace or even our marriage. And this baptism with the Holy Spirit is just as powerful in India or in Greece or Colombia or Germany or Russia or China or anywhere else in the United States. This is a tremendous offer that God is making to us in terms of, uh, of the baptism with the Holy Spirit, that we will enter into any environment we find ourselves in the remainder of our pilgrimage and need not be overwhelmed by anything about that environment, but to be able to stand for God and be an influence for God in that environment. 
Now, all of that then raises the critical question. How do we receive this baptism with the Holy Spirit? How does a person experience this baptism with the Holy Spirit? And again, we go to verse 8, and Jesus says it in the first four words of the verse, but you shall receive power. There's a lot of, there's a lot of words in that verse that are worth circling. A power's worth circling. A pawn is worth circling. Witnesses unto me is worth circling. And then the word receive is worth circling as well. This baptism with the Holy Spirit is something that is received. And receive is a gift word. It is a gift word from God. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't work for it. It doesn't say that in order to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, we're going to need to huff and puff and blow some spiritual house down or accomplish something. When I was in junior high school, there were three uh, PE teachers. One was Mr. Smith, and one was Mr. Vargas, and the other was Mr. Butler. And uh, they had this uh, thing that they would throw around. If you wanted, uh, sometimes when you got in trouble or sometimes you wanted something from them, and they'd say, give me 50. And uh, and then get down and give them 50 push-ups. Well, listen, I mean, at that age, ah, skin and bones, I couldn't give them 50 of anything in terms of push-ups. My bottom was way up in the air and these little tiny uh, trying to give them the 50. But sometimes we think related to the Holy Spirit that, you know, uh, this isn't something that's received, but somehow we've we got to prove something to God. We, we've got to earn this uh, kind of thing uh, from God, not something that is received. Well, then we ask ourselves, well, then how do we receive it? By simply asking God for it. It's there for the asking. And I want you to turn a little further to the left in your Bible to Luke chapter 11. And I want you to turn to Luke chapter 11. I could read it to you, but I want you to see it with your own eyes. Because there's a word in that passage that I want you to circle in your Bible as well. I'm going to mess your Bible up today uh, on things, but it's helpful to remember. Luke chapter 11 Luke chapter 11, in verse 9, Jesus is speaking, and he says to the disciples, and I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give his son a stone? Uh, If he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a a scorpion? These are rhetorical questions. Of course no one uh, father would do that to a child. And then here's the point. And Jesus said, if you then being evil, the best of fathers in comparison to our heavenly father, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, and we do readily, How much more will your heavenly Father, and there's the word I want you to circle, the word give. How much more will your heavenly Father give, that's a gift word, the Holy Spirit to those who, and this is the other word I want you to circle, ask him. It is all received by the asking. When we come to God and we say, uh, we sincerely ask God for this power within our life, And when we do that, God never, ever fails to answer that prayer. Remember, the baptism with the Holy Spirit is his idea. He is 
eager for this to mark and characterize our Christian life. And so just to come to, the, to God and say something like, Heavenly Father, I ask for this power of your Holy Spirit within my life. Get me out of Romans chapter 7. Get me out of this continual defeat in my life in the face of sin or in the face of the scorn or ridicule uh, of people. And I ask that you'd baptize me with your Holy Spirit so that I can live a life like Jesus in any situation, in any environment, in the whole world, uh, and all of it that can dish, it would dish out against me. And when a Christian prays and asks the Father uh, for this baptism with the Holy Spirit, uh, they receive it. No Christian is the same after having asked as they were before. And don't wait for a feeling uh, or an emotion on it. When some people get baptized with the Holy Spirit, it's a very emotional experience uh, 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 for them. And, uh, and I think all of that is terrific. But then there's other people, Scots, uh, they get baptized with the Holy Spirit, and uh, there may be very little emotion related to it, but they recognize there's a new dynamic that's been introduced into my life. There's a new power that's been introduced into my life that wasn't there before, though emotionally, it's not a huge emotional experience for them, but they've still been baptized with the Holy uh, Spirit. The main thing is that we don't judge whether it's happened based upon some emotional experience or event. The baptism with the Holy Spirit is like salvation. It is received by faith. I ask for it, and then it is a gift given to us by God. Uh, sometimes when I pray with some, uh, a person uh, to receive the Lord, let's say up in front after a service, and here they are, they've committed their life to the Lord, and here they're brand new creation, and, and just starting in the early minutes now of their Christian life. And, uh, and I'll, I, sometimes I'll pose a couple of questions to them. I'll say, now, when you leave this place and you go out to your car and head out into life, if somebody asks you, are you a Christian, uh, what's your answer? And they say, yes. And they're kind of, yes? Yeah, that's the right answer, so I'll affirm them on that. Then I ask them a question that I know they won't be able to answer. And I'll say, uh, if they ask you, how do you know that you're a Christian, what would you say to them? And I never leave them hanging there because I know that they don't know the answer. And I'll say, here's the answer to that. And I turn them to John 3:16, where Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so I say to the person, are you a whosoever? Yes. Have you believed in Jesus Christ? Yes. Then John 3.16 says you have everlasting life. You are born again. You have everlasting life on the basis, not of an emotional experience, but on the basis of the most authoritative thing in the world, the Word of God. And what is true of salvation is also true related to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has promised it to us. 
when we ask for it, that we will receive it, and, and, and so uh, we do. And, uh, and when we've asked for it, uh, we have that confidence that it has happened in our lives just as Jesus has said, and now all I need to do is to walk in that power that's come into my life by faith, and I'll discover it to be true. Now, one of the big mistakes that you don't want to make concerning the baptism of the Holy Spirit and I heard this all of the time as a new Christian, and, and I, don't, I don't keep up with a lot of where uh, a lot of different teaching is on, on some of these subjects, uh, you know, anymore, and so I don't know what's happening in, in different circles. But I heard an awful lot of it as a, as a new Christian and, and through the ages. And, uh, and, and, and so often it's presented in this way, uh, concerning the baptism with the Holy Spirit, that yes, you ask for it, and God will give it to you. But you know, the Holy Spirit is a Holy Spirit, and He won't just come into any old unholy vessel. And so if you want the fullness of the, whole, uh, of the Holy Spirit within your life, you need to make yourself holy for that to happen. And it completely defeats the whole purpose of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. How and we, we need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit in order to be holy. If I could make myself holy on the basis of self-effort, I wouldn't need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And what this kind of thing does is it absolutely dooms people into Romans chapter 7 Christianity, where all their life they're trying to get good enough to receive this blessing from God, and then as they continue a life of defeat, they convince themselves that it's because they haven't made themselves holy enough rather than realizing that this is something that God offers. He makes a gift. It's received by asking, and it is only through the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we will have the power to live the Christian life that we see described in the New Testament uh, Scriptures. So, all of that is nonsense, and, and if it's plagued you, uh, I want you to be free from it today. Sometimes people get confused concerning all of this, and they'll say, uh, and, and this is a lot of people, uh, and they'll say, I thought we got everything we needed uh, from the Holy Spirit, concerning the Holy Spirit, when we were saved. After all, doesn't it say in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, uh, that there is one baptism? And yes, it does. That verse speaks of the fact that there's one baptism. But in that passage, the Apostle Paul is almost certainly speaking of our conversion experience as being baptized or immersed into the body of Christ as a result of being born again. In, this, in the same vein, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. He says, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. But the problem is that is in the New Testament, the Bible also talks about other baptisms than the baptism of being placed into the body of Christ, the inexperience of the Holy Spirit coming into our lives. The Bible talks about the importance of water baptism for the Christian. 
And in fact, there are at least three Christian experiences described as baptism in the Scriptures, being baptized into the body of Christ, water baptism, and then the baptism with the Holy Spirit. So, Paul cannot be saying something in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, talking about one baptism that then casts doubt upon the legitimacy of any of the other two, because he taught the importance of all three. He is merely saying that one of the many things that we have in common as Christians is the experience of being born again into the body of Christ and becoming a part of the family of God. Now, let me show you a place within the Scriptures where there is a gap of time that elapses between a moment a person becomes a Christian and the Holy Spirit comes into their life and then the time that they receive the upon experience, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And here's why it's significant. And I have no doubt that 70% of the room comes from this background at some time in your Christian life. Because what it does is it dispels the idea that for every single Christian, it may be true of many Christians, but not true of every Christian, that every single Christian receives everything that the Holy Spirit has to offer into their life at the moment of conversion. So if you turn a little bit to the right in your Bible, I forget where I've left you at this point, but let's go to Acts chapter 8. And again, I want you to see it with your own eyes because I don't want you to believe it because I've said it and then have someone talk you back into Romans chapter 7 uh, afterwards. And so here in, in uh, Acts chapter 8, we have a, a place where the baptism with the Holy Spirit occurs in the lives of believers, but it occurs sometime after they're being born again and even, even water baptized. You notice in verse 9, there was a certain man called Simon who had previously practiced sorcery in the city of Samaria, and he astonished people there. Uh, they're in the middle of a great revival that Philip, is, the Holy Spirit, is using to bring uh, to Samaria through a, a Christian and a deacon by the name of Philip. And so they, the whole city had previously been uh, very impressed with this man by the name of Simon uh, the sorcerer, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with the, the, his sorceries for a time. Then Philip shows up, starts preaching the gospel to this superstitious uh, uh, population, but when they believed Philip, and that word believed there is the same Greek word for believed in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him. These people have believed unto salvation. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. There is no way that Philip water baptized people who were not Christians. And then we're told in verse 13 that Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and the signs which were done. 
In verse 14, word gets to the apostles in the city of Jerusalem that a revival's broken out in Samaria, and all we've got is a mere deacon out there. We better get some uh, apostles out there. And so the, when the apostles who were in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. You say, well, that's confusing. No, it isn't. Verse 16, for as yet he had, fall, he, as yet he had fallen upon. The Spirit was with them. The Spirit was in them. What they were lacking was the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And as yet, uh, he, had, he, the Holy Spirit, uh, had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the, uh, of the Lord Jesus. And when they laid hands on them and they received of the Holy Spirit, that is, this baptism with the Holy Spirit. So you see here a very interesting thing where you have a Christian who is born again. The Holy Spirit comes in them. But for them, the baptism with the Holy Spirit is a subsequent event. Uh, even with the apostles, we looked at them in John chapter 20 a few minutes ago, where Jesus breathes upon them in the upper room on the night of his resurrection. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes in them. It would be 50 days later that they would experience the baptism with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Those are two examples from Scripture that sometimes a person may not experience everything at the moment of their conversion. It's also interesting as you read uh, <laughs> Romans chapter 7. Here you have Paul. It's autobiographical. He's describing his life. Clearly, he's born again. Clearly, the Holy Spirit is in him. But what he lacks is uh, the upon experience of the Holy Spirit at that, at that time in his life and it, it to bring him out into the fullness of, uh, of the, the Spirit-filled life that he describes there in, in, chapter, uh, in chapter 8. And so, so, sometimes, maybe most of the time, I don't know, only God knows, uh, maybe a person receives as a Christian everything all at once concerning the Holy Spirit. I'm just making a point here today that there can be people who are born again, and then that receiving of the Holy Spirit uh, in the upon experience is a subsequent uh, experience that, uh, that occurs. Some people uh, experience all of it at conversion. M my wife Karen uh, did. I'm still bitter about it. I, uh, I, I, didn't, I was born again, absolutely born again. And I did not receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit for a number of months after I was born again. I mean, I, 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 a type A personality, uh, determined, hardworking, uh, individual, responsible person, God has saved me, now I'm going to obey these commandments in the Bible. And, uh, and uh, immersed myself very thoroughly in a Romans chapter 7 uh, 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 Christianity, and, and then later uh, secured my escape from Romans chapter 7 Christianity by way of the baptism with the Holy Spirit that was subsequent. Sometimes you can go into a church, and it, it's utterly opposed to the idea of what some people scorn as a second blessing or the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot of people that do that, a lot of teachers, Bible teachers that do that, a lot of pastors that, that do that. 
And so here is a church, and, 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 and you go into a church that, uh, that is utterly opposed to the idea of the baptism with the Holy Spirit or some additional work of the Holy Spirit in our lives uh, subsequent to, to salvation. And there she is. She's at the entryway of the church. She's 92 years old, and she's handing out bulletins at that location. And there is a flow of life, of spiritual life and love that is coming out of her life, literally exploding out of her. And she may not have the slightest idea about any of the theology of it, All that's happened to her is she surrendered to the Lord. Somewhere along the line, she has asked for his fullness, and this dynamic is introduced into her life. And my point is that this can happen at conversion, or it can happen afterwards. Not to overthink it, but but if you have it, if you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, that's great. But if you don't and haven't been baptized with the Holy Spirit, then to make sure that you uh, ask uh, for it. Uh, some, usually when I teach on this uh, passage, and I'm always glad it comes up every couple of years on a Sunday morning in, in the Scriptures, um, I'll catch, two people will catch me at the back door, say, and they're like the saintliest people in the church. I mean, they got so much Holy Spirit on them and upon them and through them and flowing out of them, and they'll come and say, uh, Pastor, I don't know that I've ever experienced this, uh, you know, what you've described here before, and, and what I'm talking about here in some way casts some doubt upon, you know, the fullness of the Holy Spirit that's a, a, a upon their life. And I don't teach this in order to cast any doubt in anybody's uh, heart that has been baptized with, with, with the Holy Spirit, uh, but... Uh, but I, I, but I, and so if you've got it, then somewhere along the line you asked for it in a way that God understood and now enjoy it. I'm dealing with people who are immersed in Acts chapter 7 or their life is one of continual defeat in the face of sin. That's who I want to talk to uh, this morning about this. It's also critical to understand technically that the Bible teaches that there's one, for a Christian, there's one baptism with the Holy Spirit. There's one event uh, called that that occurs within our lives, but there are many, many refillings with the Holy Spirit. And Acts chapter 2, the disciples are baptized with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 4, uh, we read later, uh, subsequently, uh, of them asking to be refilled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place they were assembled together with was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, refilled, and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. The Apostle Paul, in terms of being refilled with the Holy Spirit and constantly refilled as, as Christians, he wrote to the church at Ephesus, and he said, do not be drunk with wine wherein is excess but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the grammar of of the passage says it literally means be being filled, be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. And why do I need to be refilled with the Holy Spirit as a Christian? Because I leak, and you leak, 
And more than that, because we give out from our lives into the lives of other people, there is virtue, there is dynamic, there is life of the Holy Spirit that goes out from our lives into the lives of the people that are uh, all around us. Here's an illustration or two concerning being refilled. Here you are, you start the day and uh, surrendering to God's will in your quiet time and uh, going over the day with Him and uh, asking to be freshly filled with the Holy Spirit. And so you begin the day filled and surrendered and love and joy is coming out of, uh, out of your life like a torrent of living water. And then what happens? The kids get up. And I'm not talking about the two-year-olds. I'm talking about the teenagers or whatever they are. The kids get up, and then now it's a demand, and it's a pull, and we realize, all right, all of life is not my quiet time, and they begin to pull virtue from you, love from you, peace from you, joy from you. It starts to flow out of, of your life. Or you get to work, and you plow into a series of very difficult phone calls that nobody else wants to make, and yet it's been assigned uh, to you. Or an unexpected rush comes into the, the restaurant, a, a school bus pulled up outside of it, and now you've got 80 people that the manager didn't schedule for uh, that now want breakfast at the place that you and the other waitress are working at. Or the Dow uh, drops a thousand points. Or you run into that person in life that is a, a special drain and pull of virtue out of you. They've got so much need, and they, and they bring that need uh, to you. And then what happens? By 10 o'clock in the morning, that same morning, you have a sense now that uh, there is way too much of me, too much of the old Damien Kyle, too much of my flesh uh, coming out now. People are no longer coming into, into contact with God, His Holy Spirit in my life, and uh, I, they're coming into contact with me, and so it's time to ask to be refilled with the Holy Spirit. So what do you do? You find a phone booth, and you go in, and you close it. And no, anytime, you don't have to close your eyes. Nobody even needs to know that you're praying and say, Lord, you know what I'm in the middle of right now, and I ask that you would freshly fill me with your Holy Spirit, and he will, he will do that. I don't know what I would do as a Christian, not just a pastor, but as a Christian without this being able to call, ask God all of the time to be freshly filled with the Holy Spirit and then to experience that every time I do. No Christian is the same after having asked to be refilled with the Holy Spirit as they were a moment before they asked. Now, let me close with this. I'd like you to turn one final place in John chapter 7. In John chapter 7 where I want you to see how Jesus takes all of this and he untangles uh, all of this and, and makes it super simple for us. John chapter 7, verse 37. And on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive following his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
And what happens, the imagery, I remember Greg Laurie, uh, when, uh, when I was a new Christian, he was writing gospel tracks, and he's quite a cartoonist, and he did a, a gospel track on the baptism with the Holy Spirit, and it showed a guy with a big hole here and a great gusher of water like you would see out of a fire hydrant coming out of his life. And he used that imagery to describe the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what it is. It's not just to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I have enough power to get by in my own life. Uh, it, is, it is a overflow of the Spirit from our lives that then impacts the people and the world around us with the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love and so forth, that comes, comes out of our lives as a result. We become, with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, human drinking fountains, spiritually uh, speaking. And you think about it, I love the fact that it's called a torrent of living water, Old King James, river of living water. I like uh, the idea of a, of a river in terms of the imagery. You think about how many people are impacted by rivers every day. How many people are going to be impacted by the Jordan River, by the Mississippi River, uh, by uh, the Rhine? How many are going to be impacted by the Nile, the Tigris Euphrates? I don't know how many of you have been to the, you know, the Niagara Falls, and that's just one river. But what God is saying here is that God has called us as Christians to be this great, overflowing spiritual river to the entire world. We are it in terms of the flow of the Spirit into this world, and He does it through us and into other lives and situations through the baptism with the Holy Spirit, refreshing other people, bringing them into contact with the Lord. And so that Jesus makes it so simple. Now it's no longer terminology or Greek prepositions, but rather I look at my own Christian walk this morning, and I ask myself, is my relationship with the Holy Spirit one? That the Holy Spirit pours forth from my life is a torrent of living water? Or am I mired in the misery of Romans chapter 7? Or is my life, if, if the truth were to be known, uh, one of constant defeat in the face of temptation and sin? Not only behind closed doors, but even out in the open. And then to realize that, that if that is my experience, if that is the Christian life that I have, then to realize there's a greater work of God's Holy Spirit available to you and me for the asking and to be received. And so as a Christian the, this morning, if you're in that place of continual uh, defeat, no joy and, and, and all that I've just described, the Bible teaches that you need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Or if you've, nev if you've never been water uh, baptized with the Holy Spirit, rather. Or if you have been baptized with the Holy Spirit, but it was 19 1976, and you've never asked to be refilled, you can get a little dry in the demands of life. Then maybe today is a day where you realize, I didn't know about that refilling part. And to ask to be refilled with the Holy Spirit so that none of us as Christians in the city of Modesto, and some of you come from Turlock, I know, and other cities as well, but so that, so that we can uh, exhibit and, and experience the full uh, Christian life that God wants to have represented within the world by either being baptized with the Holy Spirit this morning, if I've never done that before, or to be uh, refilled and to begin a life of refilling. It's all there for the asking.
Jesus said, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father, your heavenly Father, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And if you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, God bless you. It's quite a sermon you sat through. But I trust the Holy Spirit had something for you here today. All that I'm describing here and more awaits you on putting your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God today. I'd like the worship team to come forward and to come out, and I'd like to close us up in prayer before you stand. Would you pray with me? In the privacy of your individual heart, I am asking God to confirm this truth with accompanying signs and wonders. I lay out all that I laid out in such detail and for such a length of time so that you could feel free to understand the legitimacy of this part of the Christian life and to receive it for yourself. And if you sit here today and say, I don't know that dynamic. My Christian life doesn't resemble what you're describing there. And I want to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I ask, as all of our eyes are closed within this room, but in order to give you a reference point, that you just raise your hand out to God and that you just say something to him like this this morning. Heavenly Father, I ask, as you invited me to, to receive this dynamic of your Holy Spirit into my life and that you would lead me now into the Christian life that this man in front has been talking about. Just ask him for it right now. I'm not even opening my eyes. This is a personal moment for you. I just want everyone to know this experientially for your own life. And Father, I do pray for each and every one of us as Christians that you would continue to uh, confirm this great truth of the baptism with the Holy Spirit and the refilling with the Holy Spirit, the upon experience, all the remaining days of our pilgrimage, Lord, so that we will not attempt to live this independent of the power that is found solely in Him and appears to be uniquely tied to this baptism with the Holy Spirit. Make us, Lord, a Spirit-filled church. And I pray, Lord, that not one person will leave this place today, first service, second service, who is not enjoying the fullness of this promise of you, our Heavenly Father. And I ask it, and we ask it, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.